Well, good morning and welcome to the dehydrating and freeze drying class on uh, food preservation here. I'm also going to mention a little bit about uh, salt brine pickling uh, at the end. So before we start, if we could just start with a word of prayer. Our dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful for the harvest that we are able to bring in vegetables and fruits from our gardens every year. And Lord, we also thank you for the way of escape that you've provided um, for the times when we can't bring in fresh fruits and vegetables, that we can preserve those from the time when there's a bounty. And so Lord, just teach us and um, be with us here as we, we learn about some different methods of preserving food. And we thank you for your love and care. Thank you for everyone here, and um, be with me now as I, as I give this presentation. And we praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start with um, dehydrating. And, you know, in, in Genesis, the commission that was given to our first parents to dress and to keep the garden... Uh, is really better translated um, as to serve and preserve the garden. When you look at those original words in the, in the text, to serve and preserve. Uh, and in serving the garden, it would serve us. You know, it's, it's, it's just an amazing lesson book. Man placed in this garden to learn of the character of God. The Eden school, as it's referred to by the spirit of prophecy... And it was God's intent that the children of Adam and Eve would leave the Garden of Eden to start their own Gardens of Eden and to continue this, this process. Well, we no longer live in a garden, unfortunately, and we can just pick our food and eat it directly from the tree. So we have to uh, make a means of preserving that food. To start here, I have a little, uh, I have a history uh, in agriculture. My great-grandpa on my, uh, Wildman on my grandma's side, um, ran a packing shed. So this is one of the labels that was uh, part, of, part of the company that he owned with another uh, individual. So it was Wildman Brothers and, Pac and Elliott um, Incorporated in Cutler, California. Bluebird brand was one of the uh, brands that they packed fruit for. Um, another brand was Flash Brand um, that they packed for. I love this old, this is in the 30s and 40s, this old artwork from, from that time. And here is out front of the packing shed. These are all uh, trays of, looks like either apricots or peaches or something. And this is how they used to dry and preserve um, extra bits of fruit that was harvested in the field uh, from their orchards and, and, and different orchards that they worked with. And they just put these screens out on the ground. I can't imagine all that work. That looks like a lot of work. I mean, it takes me a couple hours to fill up two Excaliburs. And I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds of trays of uh, drying fruit. And that's how they used to do it, just out in the sun. Um, the, although the sun kind of degrades the fruits, not, not the best practice um, there. So where, where we're going to start here is with some pros and some cons of dehydrating food. So let's begin with the benefits. Uh, according to the University of Missouri, foods that are dehydrated will not spoil. The reason being because in order to grow bacteria and yeast and mold need water, something that dehydrated foods lack. Um, there are other Benefits mostly to do with convenience. Campers and hikers will often pack dried foods to make them lightweight. And dried foods such as fruit, leathers, make an easy snack. Moreover, dried vegetables are simple to store and can be added to your favorite recipes and stews. And so, yeah, I've done a lot of backpacking, and um, every meal that we took was, was uh, dehydrated so that we didn't have to carry all that extra water weight. Um, some of the negatives, if 
you're wondering about the effect of drying on nutrient value of the food, the, again from the University of Missouri, uh, vitamin A and C are minimized due to heat and air. Sulfite treatment, which a lot of dried food you look at uh, are treated with sulfite, um, causes the destruction of thiamine, and this is part of the B complex of vitamins, so you lose uh, a lot there. And then, of course, blanching the vegetables before drying them, which is, is a common practice um, for vegetables anyway, uh, you definitely destroy uh, vitamin C as well as B-complex vitamins um, and induces the loss of some minerals. That said, blanching reduces vitamin A and C loss during the dehydration and storage stages, so you lose even more a little bit later. Uh, as you go through the process. Dried food also tends, tends to have more calories as they have a greater nutrient concentration. So, um, for instance, 100 grams of fresh apricots contains about 51 calories, while 100 grams of, apricot, of dried apricots contains about 260 calories. So, uh, dehydrated foods end up losing about anywhere from 5 to 8% of their nutrient value. And that, as compared to canned foods, which lose 60 to 80% of their nutrient value. So, there's a big difference there. So, you know, the more you can dry, obviously the better. I mean, not to say there's anything wrong with canning food, but you, you, you know, for storing up some calories or whatever for the, for the winter, um, it's pretty much a former shell of, of what it was in the beginning because you're just basically cooking it to death and you lose all the enzymes and a lot of the nutrient value um, in the canning process. Uh, at Daystar, we use a couple of uh, Excalibur dehydrators. These, this, this is one of my favorite um, dehydrators. Um, out there, you can get them for anywhere from 280 to 1,000 bucks. Um, and then we also bought a, a Weston. Um, it's a cabinet about as tall as this table here that holds about 24 racks, and we got it for 350 bucks. It, I've seen them range from 350 to 500 bucks, and it's a decent dehydrator as well. Although the fan kind of didn't seem like it really moved the moisture out of the compartment. We've, we're actually thinking of putting an extra fan in there to move that moisture out of the cabinet a little quicker. Um, it seems to take a lot longer um, in, this, in this cabinet, drying in this cabinet. So we don't even use all 24 racks. You know, we'll load it up with anywhere from 10 to 15 racks in there and give, give some space. Uh, what's nice about the Excalibur, it's got um, a little guide just right on the top by the temperature knob of some different drying temperatures, you know, your herbs and living foods um, being down there between, you know, 105 and, and lower. Um, anything above 105, you, you start to lose enzymes. That's the temperature in which you're, you're going you're gonna to lose enzymes. So if you can dry it, lo the, the lowest temperature possible is really best. Um, they have meats at the top of the list. Obviously, you've got to be careful with the meats. We're not dehydrating any meat, so... Um, we're just doing fruits and veggies and, and fruit leathers, and so we keep it as, as low as we can. Uh, one of the things that just really bugged me when I first got to Daystar was how many heirloom tomatoes I would load up in the wheelbarrow and haul out to the compost pile and just toss into the compost pile because we, they were seconds. We couldn't sell the seconds fast enough. They had cracks in the, in the crowns, and um, uh, we just... You know, we, had, we weren't processing them in any way. And so I started taking the heirloom tomatoes up to the calf and, and just lopping off the top, the crown, and, and getting a couple of fat, a um, couple of three slices out of each tomato and dehydrating them. And, they, and if, you, if you stop at a certain point, don't let them go totally hard. You know, it's really difficult to chew it in the end. Um, it turns out to be a nice, like, jerky texture, a nice, chewy, jerky texture. And um, um, just, you know, I was able to actually figure out that whatever our second's price was 
per bin. So like if I brought in, you know, $50 worth of seconds tomatoes, I mean, I was throwing away probably 30 to 40% of that tomato into the compost pile and the remaining uh, 60 or so percent of the tomato that I was dehydrating, I was able to sell for that same uh, seconds price. So, um, you know, I had a little bit of work that, that went into it, but basically I locked in the seconds price, um, a dollar for dollar and, and, and gave those tomatoes a longer shelf life. So here's a shot of some of our, um, heirloom tomatoes with a little bit of seasoning on top. You can season them, you know, however you like, and that makes a nice, um, chewy leather in the end. So speaking of leather, fruit leather is another great, um, way to process, uh, fruits. It's really quick. You know, I, I just throw whatever we have, like one, one year we got a bunch of free peaches and they were really not that great. They had a good flavor, but the peaches were mealy and just not that great. And I just throw them in the blender, blend them up with the skins and all, dehydrate them into a leather, and um, and they were excellent. I mean, it was just the flavor was there, and you know, leather's leather. And actually, they dried out a little quicker because they weren't as juicy peaches, being all mealy. So here's one of our students, Dane, as he's uh, um, packaging up a bunch of fruit leather before going to GYC. This is a means for which we can take our students to GYC. Um, to ASI, to, th to this conference here, um, is by processing a bunch of food and bringing that and selling it at our, at our booth. So here's a bunch of uh, fruit leather that we're packaging up. Kale chips is another great way to um, preserve a bounty of kale. If you've got lots of kale coming, make kale chips. They're, they're excellent. It's a great way to get people off of potato chips. I mean, you know, you make a good tasting kale chip, and people are really, they really uh, uh, are excited about how well and how um, amazing the taste is. And it, the, the method really is pretty simple. You just make up any sort of smoothie. You want a, you want a nice, thick smoothie. Um, so this was part of the um, garden veggie kale chip that we brought this year. We just throw some heirloom tomatoes in the blender, some peppers, some cilantro, some sea salt, you know, any other little seasoning that you want to do in there. We threw some sunflower seeds in this. You, you, you with fruit and vegetables, you know, a little bit of, of a nut. Um, you can blend up any nut to give it uh, a, a thicker consistency so that it hangs on to the kale as you're massaging it in. And then you just pour this pour this over the kale. So this is actually mango here. We did a, a mango uh, lime and chili kale chip where we just blended up straight mango and actually apricot. We put mixed apricot in with this and, um, and then in the end sprinkle a little tahine, which is just a, a non-spicy, you know, um, chili lime and lime and chili seasoning that you always see at the Mexican fruit carts. They always put on fruit and just gives it a nice, um, nice sweet and sour, uh, flavor. So you just pour that smoothie over the kale, massage it in and spread it out on your on your uh, trays. The one drawback to the Excalibur, you can see here, I'm only getting four trays into, you know, there's nine, nine trays that come in each of these, but with the kale chips, how tall they stand, you can't, you can't fit every tray. So you got to skip every other, every other tray and you, you get a little less than half the capacity of the overall dehydrator, but we have a couple of them and we load up our other one as well. And, and, you know, it takes, little less than a day or so to fully dry out. You want them to be nice and dried out. So they're nice and crunchy. So there's, you can't really over dry, uh, kale chips. Um, <clears throat> especially if you're in a humid, humid environment or whatever, make sure they're nice and dry, put them in an airtight package to, uh, keep them crispy. One of the things that I wanted to really start experimenting with this last summer and I didn't get to, I'm going to build one of these this next summer is a solar dehydrator. And so I've looked at a lot of different plans and this is, this is a plan that I had kind of thought in my mind, this would be the best design. You have a, a solar collector where you've got some sort of plexiglass, um, over a little box, you know, frame of some sort and have a, have a metal, 
uh, grating in there that can absorb heat, but air can pass through. And then, you know, the air is drawn in from the bottom of this solar collector and it rises up and rises through the food and out the, out the top of, of the drying chamber. I mean, that logically seems like, like the best plan. But as I looked into this more and more, this actually, um, the system kind of works against itself. As that hot air rises through the food and gains moisture, it gets denser and gets heavier, and it actually wants to fall back down. And so you're kind of working against itself in trying to push that air through the... um, through the chamber so you you would really you would need to add a fan to the top of this to kind of suck the air and draw the air through the chamber and out the top out the out the vents in the top of it to really make this system work actually the the better design is something like this where the air is entering to your solar collector it's rising up through that solar co- collector um, gaining heat and then it enters the drying chamber at the top and as it gains moisture, it falls. And so there's another kind of a, you know, pump happening there where the, that convection then is, is descending through the drying chamber. And then the back wall is a false, a false wall where there's a, basically a chimney um, in the back wall. And then it's drawn out from the bottom and up and out the chimney out the back wall. And you can find tons of, of designs online. Um, describing how to make these and um, this was uh, somebody's backyard version here of just taking an old dehydrator and putting a frame in here and and you know maybe they didn't have power and they were trying to dry their food out and that looks like it might work but it would be better to build something like this this design actually was really simple um, where the drying chamber is actually housed in that triangle space underneath the collector so it it minimized the size of this and obviously made it a lot lighter, easier to roll around your yard. You know, this is something you can roll right out into the orchard or out into the garden and, and process right outside and just put stuff right into it. Um, you'd have to make, you know, some, this guy made some custom frames. This is Bigelow Brook Farm. Um, he made a YouTube uh, um, class or, or a little demonstration on how to build this step-by-step, really simple. And a um, good way to dry out your food. Another even more simple version of a solar dehydrator is a far infrared solar dehydrator. So, you know, um, the advantages here, you know, using the sun and, and not exposing the, the food to light. Um, obviously, no electricity, no, no moving parts. Very simple construction. And you can preserve fruits and vegetables. I thought this would be a really good design to have a few of these out in the garden to just do herbs uh, in, actually. So um, this was from a YouTube video. I just took a few screenshots here, step by step. I mean, you could build one just from these few pictures here. Obviously, just a frame. You attach a piece of tin to that frame. You paint the um, one side black. And that's the side that the sun is going to be coming through the plexiglass onto and heating. And then that's radiating through the bottom of the of that piece of tin um, far infrared radiation um, into another frame where you have um, your food so you build a second frame put a screen over it and put a piece of tin corrugated you know pro panel or, or roofing tin or something underneath that so the air can pass underneath that screen where your food is being held and uh, he put a little flashing on the top because he found he couldn't, the temperatures wouldn't get hot enough with, if there was a little bit of breeze and too much air was able to blow through it. So he put this little flashing on the backside, and, and, uh, you know, which still allows the air to escape from the sides and through the corrugated parts. Put a little temperature gauge in there so you could get some data and see like how warm your, your little thing is getting. Attach the two frames together with uh, a hinge and you're off and running. I mean, this is a very simple design. Um, you know, you could build this in a matter of a couple of hours probably. And then, uh, you have a plexiglass polycarbonate, uh, top on this, put a little handle on there and, um, it makes a little greenhouse effect. And here he's little temperature gauge. He's, you know, it's getting up to 118 degrees Fahrenheit. That's perfect. 
perfect for, uh, for outside dehydrating. Now, I, I even looked up some stuff um, for people who are in humid areas. Even if you're in a humid area, remember, humid, humidity is, is relative to temperature. So your relative humidity inside a, a drying chamber, if it gets, hot, it gets nice and hot in there, the humidity is going to go down. So that, that uh, uh, you'll be pulling uh, moisture off the food. And, and so, you know, do some experimenting and see if you can make one of these work in real humid areas. Obviously, like where we live in the desert, super simple, no problem at all. Um, to dehydrate just outside. Uh, he put this, this little solar dehydrator on a, on a, on a 13 degree angle. He found that that was the best angle, um, to aim at the sun and then not so much angle that all your food just falls to the bottom of the, of the little screened in, uh, tray that it's all sitting on. So, um, 13 degrees here, he's drying a bunch of herbs in there, put a little chain on the, on the lid to hold it from flopping back when you open it. Very simple design. So that's dehydrating and uh, dehydrating is probably the most simple process that we have, right? I mean, it's, it's been around, um, since the beginning, obviously. I mean, that's an easy way. I remember growing up in, in uh, Northern California and, um, there were blackberries growing just all over the place. And my dad would tractor down all those blackberries in our backyard to the ground, scrape them to the ground, and they just would just come back like, like a, with a vengeance. Every year, those blackberries were five you know, feet tall, just thick. And my brother and I, we'd carry, we'd take two two-by-sixes and, um, or two-by-ten, the planks, and we'd throw one down and, and, uh, and then both get on it and kind of stomp it down and then carry another one and put it down and then pick up our one behind us and we'd make trails and we'd just go all through this huge blackberry uh, bush in our backyard and picking blackberries. I mean, it was just like our, our, one of our favorite fruits. My mom would bake blackberry pie and, and we ate half of them while we were picking them. And it always amazed me that, that there would be a blackberry on there and it would be completely dried out and it was just perfect. You pick that thing and it was chewy and it was like, it was perfectly dehydrated right there on the, on the vine. All right. So moving on to freeze drying, um, we just, we got into this, uh, oh, a little over two years ago. Now we got our first freeze dryer and just a blessing, a uh, former student, at Daystar, uh, his mom called me up and, and said, hey, I want to make a donation to the school here at the end of the year, but I, I don't want to just donate to the school and not know where my money's going. She's like, I, so I thought I'd call you and see what projects are you working on? You know, what do you, what can I donate to? And I said, well, actually, I was just on the internet last night looking at uh, freeze dryers. You want to buy a freeze dryer for us? And she said, yeah, how much is it? And so I had kind of calculated we needed about five grand to get the freeze dryer and um, a couple of pumps. I decided to get two pumps after doing some research. Um, the oil pump, that's the cheaper pumps, about $350 for the oil vacuum pump. You have to filter and change or change the oil every batch. And I was like, oh, that seems like an oily mess. And uh, um, so... I decided to buy the oil list pump as well. And that pump is about $1,500. And so with um, buying those two pumps, the whole total came out to about five grand. And we uh, got this freeze dryer from Harvest Right. Here's the front page here from Harvest Right's website. And they have a a new year-end sale happening, or a New Year's sale, I should say. They got free shipping, and you can save up to $400 if you buy a unit now. And they've definitely come down in price. Um, but this is, a, this is a great way to preserve food. Uh, you know, if you, if you freeze dry things and you put it in a, in a Mylar bag with an ox, ox, oxygen absorber in there, you can preserve it up to 25-year 25 25 shelf life. And the... On their website here, they claim that, you know, you're, you're retaining 97% of the nutrient value. So, you know, you may lose 6 to 8% uh, 
um, dehydrating. Well, here you're only losing 3%. And, and the nice thing is, is the food um, retains its shape and color. And so, you know, I mean, I've dehydrated cherry tomatoes and, you know, it's a lot of work cutting all those little cherry tomatoes in half, dehydrating them, or even if you didn't cut them in half, laying them all out, drying them out. And in the end, you got one little bag of raisins and no one wants to pay the value of those dehydrated cherry tomatoes um, and, and freeze drying them. It's, it's much more, um, it holds its value a lot, a lot more because it's, it's puffed up. It kind of keeps its shape and, and it's got that nice crunchy, you know, uh, texture to it. And here's the three units that they sell. These are home freeze dryers. They also sell commercial units, um, ranging up, to, up in the $10,000 range, but these, they're small home units, the smallest one being, uh, just $2,200 or so. And the medium one being $2,700 roughly, and the large one being $3,400. Um, I always suggest to people, get the large one. You know, you're going to spend the money, spend a little bit more, and just get the large one. You can only fit about 16 um, pounds of food in this uh, freeze dryer. So uh, get yourself a coffin freezer or some, other, some extra freezers, and during the summer, just be putting stuff in bags and freezing it. And then in the winter, when you have some time, you just get this thing going. And I mean, our freeze dryer is pretty much running uh, 24-7. Um, it takes about anywhere from two to three days. In some cases, watermelon takes almost three days to fully uh, freeze dry. But what, what's happening is it's a, a freeze chamber, and it's a 10-hour freeze cycle. It freezes down to negative 40 degrees, so it's super cold in there. And then... It kicks on the vacuum pump, and the vacuum pump draws a vacuum on the chamber, and then there's heater plates under each of the trays. They come on, and they thaw the food, and the ice then sublimates, which is the process of ice going from ice to vapor. So it skips the water stage, and it then that vapor condenses on the wall of the chamber because the wall of the chamber is frozen. And so in the end, you open up the door, and there's a big ring of ice, um, around the chamber and your food in the center is completely bone dry and <clears throat> and so yeah like I said we have, we've got two pumps because um, in my research I, I thought well maybe I don't really want to like change the oil every time so this vacuum or oilless pump looks really good but it was you know a lot more expensive $1,500 and we have rebuilt that thing three times like we, I called them and we've sent it back and they've rebuilt it it, it fails to achieve the uh, vacuum uh, because the Teflon rings in the piston start to wear out or whatever. And, and it just, it really hasn't lasted. I'm, I'm actually thinking of getting rid of it and getting, they have a new pump now that has a little, uh, little catch that will actually catch the water because water will get into the oil in the, in the, in the pump. That's another reason why you got to drain and, and change the oil. Um, and it's got this catch where it catches all that water and it says that you don't have to change the oil um, every time. You can actually do 25 batches before changing the oil, and that would that'd be really good. Uh, one of the first questions I always get, you know, people look at this thing, oh, man, that looks like it's going to cost a lot of money to, to run. And it's actually not that bad. Um, I found this guy on, on YouTube. Uh, he has a, web, a YouTube channel called uh, Retired at 40, and he metered this thing all the way through so here's a bunch of data on uh, how many uh, how much power it's using um, during the freeze cycle after one hour after nine hours and you know after a 47 hour basically a two-day cycle which is pretty typical um, it consumed uh, 29.1 kilowatt hours and on the national average if you go with the national average for power that 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 cost is is about $3.49 for that two-day batch. So it's not too bad, actually. Um, the other question I get um, a lot is, um, does it really add value? Uh, is it, can you use this to, to, for a value-added uh, process with all the work involved and you know, the power usage and everything? So I've done a couple of tests. Um, just for this, for the fruit salad mix that we brought, 
Um, for instance, I bought three four-pound bags of organic strawberries, and um, at nine dollars a bag, they so a total cost of twenty-seven dollars. So that's twelve pounds of strawberries, and after freeze-drying them, um, they became one pound of freeze-dried berries. So um, if you sell your freeze-dried goods for the, uh, with the average that we kind of came on is about $4 per ounce. So we've got 16 ounces there in that, in that pound, so that's $64 of, of product. So subtract the $27 it cost me to buy the strawberries and the $3.49 to run the machine. You know, you're still profiting $33.51. So, you know, you're doubling your money still, even if you have to buy it. So obviously, if you don't have to buy produce and you're just putting it in the freeze dryer, then great. You're, you're, uh, you're doing good, right? So um, I also, you know, and strawberries are actually one of the lightest fruits in the end. They're really light, whereas mangoes, they don't, they don't lose that. There's a lot more fiber there. They don't lose that, that much I mean, they lose weight, but they're still, they still got some mass to them. And um, I did another test where I bought about $30 of organic fruit, filled it up, mangoes, strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, bananas, you know, bought a bunch of, uh, a whole mix, bagged it all up. And I had, I had just with the, you know, bananas retain a lot more weight and everything. So I had a lot more weight in the end doing a a mix. And I had just over a hundred dollars worth of product bagged up from spending $30. So, so it's definitely worth uh, doing is in terms of a value added process. And, and I kind of like the small batch aspect. We actually were donated a, a large uh, freeze dryer, industrial freeze dryer, um, so it's an older one, but, um, and we're creating a room where we're going to put this thing and we're going to set up a processing room, um, down at our farm, uh, and get, get this going as a, as an industry for Daystar and, and start making, um, backpacking food and all sorts of things. That's the great thing about a freeze dryer. Like we put up all the food for, for the backpacking trip for the kids, you know, we can make soups and rice and beans and, you know, whatever it is, um, that we're making and, and it, something like this works really well with the cafeteria, you know, anything left over, you got a few portions here, but not enough to really serve as another meal. Just throw it in the trays, freeze it, put it in the queue and, um, and send it through the freeze dryer. And so the, you know, when the kids go on their backpacking trip, they, they enjoy, um, eating some really good food. You just add some boiling water and it just hydrates right back to what it was. Like we did some applesauce, you know, you can, either hydrate it back out to applesauce consistency, or you can add less water and make an apple butter out of it. So a real quick apple butter or something you can make out of, a, out of, out of an applesauce. And you can blend those apples raw, go through the freeze-drying process. So in the end, you have, a, you have an applesauce that's raw, not cooked to death, um, like you do when you can it. Tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, grapes, um, anything that's real juicy with a, a skin like that, you're going to want to cut in half. And so that's very time consuming. So one method that I found, you take two plastic lids from, from, you know, like gallon jar or whatever, and you put all your cherry tomatoes, or your grapes in there. And then, you know, you have basically make a sandwich with those two lids and you can take a knife and just go right through the, between the, between the two lids and cut everything in half very easily. And you're basically cutting handfuls of stuff in half at a time versus single one by one. You can freeze dry stuff that you wouldn't normally be able to dehydrate. Okra is awesome freeze dried and it's raw and it's really good raw. Uh, The slime that is in okra is very medicinal. It actually cleans out your arteries. And so, and it, it only does that when it's in its raw form. Once you cook it, it loses that medicinal property. So freeze drying okra, um, is, is, uh, is more beneficial. Uh, here's one of the students holding up a tomato soup that we were doing for the, one of the backpacking trips. You can see some rice and beans there in the bottom right corner. And it just pops out as this really lightweight wafer. 
You can just break it into some pieces, put it in some Ziploc bags. You can crush it into powder really quickly if you want to make more space. And um, it's just they're having, we're having a lot of fun with it there at Daystar. Here's some peppers are another great thing to freeze dry. They turn into this just beautiful full color chip. Uh, you can dip in hummus and and make chips out of out of uh, uh, bell peppers. They actually will go pretty flat. They don't retain their their shape. Some things will kind of shrivel. Some things will totally retain their shape and almost marshmallow and enlarge a little bit. It just depends on the structure of the of the food, I guess. But so here's the bowl of of um, fruit salad that we did for this year. Packaged it all up. Strawberries and bananas and apples and kiwi and blueberries, raspberries, some persimmons, and made a nice uh, fruit salad mix. And um, really good. So we have all this stuff over there at the at the Daystar booth. You can you can check it out and help us out with our trip here because that's how we pay for these things. Watermelon, any melon is is an amazing freeze dried food. I mean, it's straight up candy at this point. Um, just this nice crunchy candy, and even if a little bit of moisture, we found like some of them wouldn't fully dry out. And if there's a little piece that's not fully dried out, the others will absorb that moisture. And in the end, you'll have like a marshmallow texture, which is really interesting still. Um, it, and it probably won't last as long. You know, you won't have that shelf life, but for just, you know, whatever, we didn't throw it away. We still ate it if it didn't fully dry out. And I found if you just, if stuff felt a little like grapes, they were still kind of spongy when I first pulled them out. I just put them in a Ziploc bag, threw an oxygen absorber in there, and then put them back in the freezer. And they totally finished off. I pulled the bag out and they were totally crunchy. So I don't... Don't fully um, know why that is, but it, it works. Asparagus. We have an acre of asparagus at Daystar and lots of it. And the only we don't spray our field with anything to manage the weeds. Uh, we just mow down basically a quarter of the, of the field each week. So we lose about 25% of production because uh, it takes about exactly one week. By the time we're mowing down the next section, that section we mowed last week, we're harvesting on again. And so before I mow it down, I'll go out there and have the students come and everything and help me. And we'll snap off every piece of asparagus in those rows we're going to mow down, no matter how tall they are, even if they're only an inch tall. You know, get those tips. And, and, and that's what we throw in the freezer. And that's what we end up freeze drying is all that stuff that we otherwise would just, would just mow down. And I tried. I did an experiment. I tried dehydrating asparagus. They turned into, to, into the toughest little stick you can imagine, I, you could not even chew it up. But freeze-dried, it's fluffy and crunchy and really good. We did a doll, uh, potato and doll, red doll curry. Um, so it's great, like I said before, like any leftovers you can throw through here. And man, you just add some boiling water and it's, it's, you almost cannot tell that it went through any sort of process. So moving on here, this is... Um, a bunch of cabbages that we had uh, one year, a bunch of extra cabbages. And so um, we've been making sauerkraut. And a very simple process to make sauerkraut. This is a form of food preservation that we've virtually lost um, in, our, in our society. Um, really interesting documentary to go and check out um, called The Poison Squad. It's a PBS documentary. Um, you can find it on Amazon, Amazon Prime. And it, it shows how, like, at the turn of the century, when all this food processing, the Industrial Revolution was breaking loose on, on, on America, it was the wild, wild west. There was no laws. You didn't have to label anything. It was completely... Most companies were just a total sham. I mean, people were putting straight-up corn syrup in a, in a jar and labeling it honey. They were putting formaldehyde in canned meat. They were putting silicilic acid in, in pickles and, and things like this. So, you know, um, it, was, it was a bad situation at the turn of the century in terms of processed food. And, you know, it, obviously the documentary documents how the, the scientist basically became the father of the FDA and brought in a lot of regulation um, and labeling and things to the situation. Um, you know, before this time, salt was the 
free, or was the uh, commodity that people would use to preserve food. So to make sauerkraut, it's very simple. You take it's it's by weight. You're you want to you want to you want to follow this precisely. Um, five pounds of shredded cabbage, and you add to that three tablespoons of sea salt. And it's best to use a sea salt. Um, because the bacteria use the minerals and things that are in the salt. So um, Celtic salt or um, some sort of sea salt derived, um, unprocessed sea salt is best. You can use pink Himalayan, but you know, pink Himalayan comes from a dry salt deposit. So it's, it's not all the minerals that are in the ocean. And in those same proportions, there's 92 minerals in the ocean. And they're nearly, nearly balanced to the 92 minerals in our bloodstream. So this, is, this basically creates a um, situation outside the body that's you know, it's a, a digestion situation happening before you actually eat this food. The bacteria that are on and inside the cabbage colonize uh, the cabbage. The salt creates an environment for the beneficial bacteria to thrive and for all the spoiling bacteria, such as botulism and, and harmful bacteria that would mold and rot the food, um, die. Um, so I throw the salt in there. You put it in a bowl. I mis- you crush it with your hands. I pound it with my fists and kind of crush up the cell walls in the cabbage. And the salt draws the water out of the cabbage, making its own brine. And I pack it into a five-gallon crock and pack it down, pack it down. I can fit, you know, I don't know, 25 pounds or so of cabbage in a five-gallon crock. And then I take a water, a be- uh, Food grade trash bag basically is what we use down at the farm to bag up all our, our produce. And I triple bag, and, um, put three bags on the top, and I fill it with water and put about, you know, three inches of water on the surface. So don't fill the crock totally full. You need some space for that weight. I don't have, they, they make these stone weights you can use too, but I don't have the stone weights, so I just use water, which basically fills the space and kind of seals it really well. I tie up the two inner bags. And then the third bag on the outside, I, I kind of envelope around the outside of the, of the crock to just keep other things out. And then you let that sit at room temperature, 70 degrees or so for 30 to 60 days. We always do 30 days. And um, the bacteria take off and colonize that um, sauerkraut. It's called a lactic acid fermentation process, similar to what's happening in sourdough bread. Or um, yogurt, if you've ever made yogurt, uh, it, it's, it's the same bacteria. There's um, really interesting history around this. Um, <clears throat> like if you look at back in the days in the 16, 1700s, you know, uh, people getting on ships and sailing for three, four months around the world or whatever, make, trying to make it to other faraway places. You know, these sailors were consuming about 3,000 calories a day, uh, which came from salted you know beef or pork uh, pound they basically eat a pound of that a day a pound of hardtack biscuits a day they drink anywhere from a gallon or so to of ale or wine or hard liquor and uh and they had maybe some dried beans or rice dried rice okay they ate no fruits no fresh fruits or vegetables and it was not uncommon for um, these ships to lose half their crew to scurvy it's called the scourge of the seas. And um, we know now it was a vitamin deficiency that gave these guys scurvy. I mean, their teeth rotted and um, they had open sores and they suffered mental breakdowns. I mean, all sorts of things happen when you don't, you're not getting the nutrients that you need. And um, uh, the explorer, James Cook, this is maritime records. I mean, you can go into history and look at this, was a pioneer in scurvy prevention he fed his men sauerkraut and dried vegetable soup. And it was not an option. It was a command from the captain. This guy would bring 3,000 pounds of sauerkraut on the ship with them. And um, it, w- it, was, it, was a, it was a command. You ate, these guys ate the sauerkraut all the way to its end. I mean, they were sipping the brine out of the bottom of the barrel all the way to the end. And he never lost a man to scurvy. Why was that? Well, in a cup of cabbage, there's about 30 milligrams of vitamin C. And we know that vitamin C is one of the major um, vitamin deficiencies that would cause scurvy. That's why 
Um, you know, some ships realize that we got to take boatloads of limes, but you know, hopefully those limes last because you, uh, you, you know, if you run out, then you, you risk the situation, whereas the sauerkraut's preserved and not going to go bad. So there's 30 milligrams of vitamin C in a cup of cabbage. In 30 days after making sauerkraut, that 30 milligrams of vitamin C rises to 700 milligrams of vitamin C in that same cup. So this, this is a superfood, and this is not the only thing that happens. You know, the, the uh, minerals and, and the addition of the increase in vitamins um, taking place in sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is considered a superfood. And so, you know, this isn't just some condiment that we're serving to you out there on the carrot hot dog cart. Um, uh, this is a beneficial superfood uh, that, you know, you learn how to do this, you can survive um, a serious situation. This woman on the right, pictured on the right here, um, showing my wife and I, and, and this is our friend Brenda in the middle here, um, Tatiana, she's showing us how to make um, borscht. She grew up uh, as a child in um, uh, the north part of Russia, um, and um, forgetting the name of the country right now, Oh, man. Anyway, she grew up in the north part of Russia where um, at one point they, um, Kyrgyzstan or one of those, one of those countries up there, um, where they put up a fence between the country and this region and Russia. They turned off the power. They killed all the scientists and teachers and anybody who had any brains. And it was in a full survival situation for a decade. And her grandmother had enough sense. I mean, they obviously, they lived out in the country. That was a big plus. And they um, always had a garden, but that food would run out. They had a shed where they had two huge copper cauldrons that were recessed into the ground. And they would um, grow a big patch of cabbage. And in one, they would have the cabbages, layer in salt. And in the other one, they would shred cabbage and make a sauerkraut. And when the other food ran out, that's all they had. They ate sauerkraut for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And um, they got sick of it, but you know what? They survived. They did not have any sort of malnutrition. None of them got sick. Um, they had all that they needed from that one food um, is what protected them from disease and starvation while their neighbors and friends they heard about in the city were, were literally starving to death and, and dropping like flies. They were able to survive this situation on sauerkraut. Um, one study um, shows how, you know, and this is something that has been studied to no end in Europe. They demanded their raw sauerkraut. They uh, didn't want any sort of, uh, of canned or sauerkraut made with vinegar. They wanted a real sauerkraut. And, you know, vinegar has just been the simple way to just bring the acidity down and can a food. That's, what, that's why every condiment that we have on the shelf basically has vinegar in it. Um, you know, the law is just that it's got to be a, the, whatever you put in jars got to be an acidity of 4.6 or lower. And so most companies just achieve that with, with straight acetic distilled uh, acetic acid vinegar. Um, but the lactic acid that's formed, naturally formed by these bacteria, will bring that, the acidity level down well below that and be fully shelf-stable. Don't No need to can it. And so they've studied this. And um, uh, they found that uh, a total of 686 or so bacterium were discovered um, uh, during a fermentation process. Of course, they're not all happening all at the same time. And um, there's, a, there's a lot that start up in the beginning, but by the end of the second week, the, uh, here's a list of, of bacteria that will, uh, part of this list of bacteria that are in a, in a sauerkraut. The lactobacillus, lots of lactobacillus, strains of bacteria, lactobacillus plantarum being um, one of the most important ones. Um, these bacteria can reside in very acidic situations. That's why they end up kind of dominating the culture. And they will make it through your stomach acid and into your gut. 
The lactobacillus plantarum, for instance, uh, colonizes the very surface of your gut lining. So they reside right up against the, the, the wall of your intestines, and you need them shoulder to shoulder on your villi, the, the, the hair-like structures in your, in your gut, where absorption is taking place. Because what they're doing is they are breaking down your food into its molecular level uh, before it is distributed into the blood. If they are not there, and food and different things can come right up against this, the lining of your intestines, um, it can irritate the intestines, inflame the intestines, and actually they're, they're, they're not being broken down. Your food is not being fully broken down into its molecular components, and food particles are then entering into the bloodstream, and this is what is known as leaky gut. So the gut is leaking toxins and food into the bloodstream, and that causes a whole host of, of situations, obviously, later on. So very important bacteria to have in your gut. Um, this is a, a, just a, uh, from DrAxe.com, um, uh, as described in a 2009 report published in the Indiana or the Indian Journal of Medical Microbiology, the use of antibiotics, immunosuppressive therapies, and um, irradiation, um, among other means of treatment, may cause alterations in gut composition and have an effect on the GI tract flora, okay? So um, introducing a beneficial bacteria species to the GI tract may be a very attractive option to reestablish um, microbial equilibrium um, and prevent disease. So, you know, uh, the report also um, uh, in 2006 published in the Journal of Applied Microbiology states that probiotic benefits from cultured foods include reduced overall inflammation, improved digest, digestive disorders like leaky gut syndrome, um, ulcerative colitis, IBS, um, improved immunity, better nutrition, absorption, uh, prevention uh, of treatment of diarrhea, prevention and symptoms reduced food allergies, including lactose intolerance. I mean, that's why, you know, yogurts and things, actually people are able to handle more sourdough. People who are even gluten-free can actually consume that um, uh, and not have a problem. Improved high blood pressure, reduced risk of cancer, um, reduced eczema symptoms, lower cholesterol, on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> so it's very uh, important um, Thing to incorporate into your diet is uh, some of these uh, very beneficial probiotic foods that, that come from uh, the bacteria that reside on and, and inside the cabbage and the fruits and vegetables growing in the garden. They're there. You're just simply multiplying them by orders of millions and billions, um, you know, to, to uh, help your situation. If you're really interested in something like this, go to mymicrobiome.com. I think it's .com, might be .org, right? but mymicrobiome, um, and all you can, or you can Google the American Gut Project. This is the largest crowd-funded scientific study on the face of the planet right now. Um, it started uh, seven years ago or so, and it was some um, micro, microbiologists from California, San Diego. Collaborate, collaborated on this, this project, and um, in 2000, 2018 is when this article was written here, but over 15,000 microbiome samples uh, from over 11,000 participants, uh, mostly from the United States, United Kingdom, Australia. They've started collecting, and they've collected way more now. Uh, basically, for 99 bucks, they'll send you a kit where you take a, a cheek skin sample and a, a fecal matter sample, and you send those in, they tell you exactly what is in, you know, living on and inside you. I mean, we are colonized. I mean, that's, that is the uh, simple truth of the matter, whether you understand it, acknowledge it, uh, or, or whatever, we are colonized. And uh, by 10 times the amount of bacteria that are living on inside you, then you have cells in your body. So... Um, really interesting information on this website. You'll just get lost in here. One, one of the interesting things, just to sh um, show you how important these things are, there was actually a book. Uh, there's a book called um, 
the forgotten organ. And I mean, these bacteria in your gut um, perform metabolic processes that of a vital organ in your system. So, you know, not having them is critical. And for, for example, you know, you always you hear about serotonin, right? And depression, low serotonin levels can lead to depression. Well, guess what? 10% of the serotonin is made in your brain. The other 90% of serotonin that your brain needs is produced by gut bacteria in your gut. If, if your gut bacteria, your microbiota is messed up, and uh, that's what this project is really showcasing and, and showing their results. Um, you know, you go to any third world country and it's 10% bad bacteria, 90% good bacteria in, in third world countries where they're eating no processed food, lots of fruits and vegetables, um, very little meat. Uh, that's, that's, that's a healthy gut. And in America, we're the exact opposite. The snapshot that they have taken through this project of the American gut is that the American gut is 90% harmful bacteria and 10% good. And so, um, you know, you don't have those good gut bacteria producing that serotonin in your gut, you're going to be a depressed person. I mean, this is, it goes everything from mood to digestion to weight loss. I mean, the studies they've done with mice taking fecal samples from, you know, from, from a, a fat, uh, obese person putting it in a mouse and that mouse becomes obese while this mouse over here eating the same diet um, with, with a fecal matter transplant from, from a healthy gut is not gaining weight and eating the same amount of calories. They swap the two mice's gut bacteria through fecal matter transplant again and the mice over here gain weight and these lose weight. Super fascinating studies around, around uh, your microbiome. So here's a quick illustration of just like um, the comparison between the genes that are in your body and the genes that are in these uh, little critters that live on and inside you. The human genome contains about 22,000 genes. And everyone in this room, we are all about 99.9% .9 identical in terms of our genes. Um, it's amazing that we have the difference that we do with being 99.9% .9 identical in our genome. Um, they've studied the genomes of all these bacteria that live uh, inside you and everything, and psh, there's 3.3 million genes uh, reported to exist in these genomes. So that's represented by this body here, the toe just being the genes that are in the human system, the human body, and then the genome uh, of these gut bacteria the entire rest of the body in terms of proportion. And we are all about, we, you know, 80 to 90% different in the genome of our gut bacteria. So very, very fascinating study. I mean, we are, they're just, I mean, the microbiome term didn't, wasn't really a term until 2001. So this is, this is stuff that they're just discovering. I mean, there's scientists who were, who were gastrointestinal doctors who basically turn their back on Western medicine and, and have made statements like we are going to look back in horror at our use of antibiotics and what we were doing to this organ uh, in our body that is the gut bacteria. And, and, and I mean, because we're putting into extinction, you know, basically certain, certain aspects of, of our microbiome by through taking antibiotics. The good news is, is that within three or four days, you can turn this around. You know, you can introduce beneficial bacteria into your system and then eating right, obviously, um, is the prebiotic that they call, like uh, beets, for instance, are one of the best growth promoters of good bacteria, you know, eating beets and beet juice and this sort of thing. Um, some of you have heard of kefir. Kefir is another probiotic food that um, contains 56 or so different strains of bacteria. You can get these little grains. Of, oftentimes it's grown in milk, but you can grow it in coconut milk. You can grow it in, in uh, almond milk. Or you can get um, water kefir strains. You can just go online and just order water kefir strains from Amazon. They'll come, they even have ones that are freeze-dried. I don't know how that works, but they're, they're in, a, in a, some sort of dormant state. And you throw them in a thing of sugar water. They all come alive. And within four days, you've got this bubbling probiotic drink that you can then inoculate fruit juice. So you can take some of that, 
put a little bit of it in, uh, just even just quarter of a cup of it in a quart of grape juice, cap it off, and in another four days, you'll have this really bubbly um, um, probiotic fizzy grape juice. And um, again, really, really, uh, really highly beneficial. You know, salt, just one last thing here on, on salt. The Bible tells us that ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith can it be salted? It sends forth good for nothing, but cast out and trodden under the feet of men. And I remember reading this verse and not really kind of understanding it. You look at the history of when Christ made this statement. Um, salt was a, monet- uh, a, a, a form of currency, and so there was always shysters, right, cutting the salt with other white powders, you know, rock dust and whatever kind of looked similar to salt to, to uh, cheat people, basically. And eventually, you know, it's been cut so much that you can actually taste that it's lost its, its savor, lost its saltiness, and it, it's no longer... a beneficial salt it's not going to preserve your food i mean that's that was the biggest biggest uh um, value of salt not just to flavor your food but the ability to preserve food Um, and in our day and age the way the salt has lost its savor i mean here's here's a jar of of um, morton's and it's just sodium synthesized sodium chloride they've added some iodine to it which is one of the 92 minerals that's in the ocean but uh, ocean water has 92 minerals in it, and it's it, those minerals, that spectrum of minerals is very important, especially when it comes to preserving food, when it comes to even eating that salt. My mother-in-law, she can't, she's very sensitive to salt. She can't eat salt, and, but she can eat um, sea salt that is unprocessed. She has no bloating or, or issues with eating a sea salt because it's balanced to her system. I mean, in World War II, they were taking seawater, filtering it, diluting it out to the human salinity because the ocean is twice the salinity of the human system and giving it as a blood transfusion and saving people. They were taking coconuts and poking a tube in it and poking it right into your vein and it was an IV because coconut trees are drinking straight seawater. Coconut water is is, uh, nearly identical to your blood plasma. So, you know, salt that has lost its savor, it no longer has that saving value, you know. And, and as Christians, that's, that's what we're to be in the world. We're to be a serving and preserving aspect. That's what, that was our job. That was our occupation given to our first parents in the garden, was to serve and preserve. And that is, is, our, is our goal in life, is to bring savor to those around us, to bring people, to introduce them to the Savior. And, and so... Um, very, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important aspect of, of looking at this situation. And, and it gives us insight into what this verse really means, you know, to bring savor, to bring a saving value to those around us. And so um, I just pray that as, uh, as you research this for yourself, I mean, don't take just what I say here for for, uh, uh, you know, solid truth or whatever. I mean, look it up yourself. Research it yourself. Look up some of these things and and decide for yourself if this is something beneficial um, for you and you should, you know, possibly incorporate it into your into your diet. Because um, it's, it's, a, it's a way of preserving food that makes food a superfood. I mean, what a beautiful preservation uh, aspect that God's given us. Not only does it preserve the food, but it it's, it's an increase. It increases the value of that food in terms of its nutritional value. So, um, um, yeah, I hope that uh, is helpful to a lot of you. And um, I'll close with a word of prayer, and then we can open it up to some questions. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that um, we can be a saving, preserving uh, thing in the world, something that, that brings value to other people's lives, that, that we can reach out with the, 
the, the health message is that right arm um, and introduce people to you. And so, Lord, as we um, go through um, this process of, of trying to figure out how it is we can preserve our food in the best uh, possible way, um, Lord, just guide us and, and teach us in the ways in which we should go. And we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.